Our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation, um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has, <clears throat> what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we uh, spend the next few minutes just reflecting on your word, Lord, and what it means for us, uh, not just as a church, but what it means for us individually, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes. Father, there's so, many, so much things going on in life. There's anxieties, uh, there's difficulties, there's worries, there's uh, pressure from our families, from our, our workplace, uh, there's pressures from... Uh, health concerns, Lord, there's so much that, that can weigh heavy on our hearts, Father. There's so many things that can distract us from your goodness and your work in our hearts. So, Father, we pray this morning that, that all those things that tend to, to crowd into our minds um, would, would not distract us from seeing your beauty and your greatness, would not distract us from experiencing your gospel anew and afresh here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name, Amen. For the for really for the next couple of weeks until we uh, get to Memorial Day, uh, we're going to look uh, through the book of Revelation. But we're going to look at certain sections of the Revelation. We're not going to do the entire book, but we're going to look at certain sections. But the whole book tells visions. It tells several visions that the Apostle John saw when he was on the island of Patmos. Tradition tells us that John, at this point in his life, uh, is really an old man. He's in the twilight or the, the last few years of his life. Now, if you're with us on Easter, when we last saw John, uh, he had just experienced a really powerful moment of belief in his life. He had heard that the stone had been rolled away from the front of the tomb, so he ran to the tomb, he looked inside, he saw that it was empty. And he experienced powerful belief in that moment. Well, when we pick up our story in the book of Revelation, John has changed a lot. He is now an old man who's experienced many different things. He's seen Jesus resurrected. He saw Jesus ascend back into heaven. He most likely witnessed the arrival of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Acts chapter 2. And He saw this movement of Jesus explode all throughout the ancient world in really powerful ways. He saw all of his friends that were really cowards at the crucifixion. He saw all of his friends become powerful pillars of the church, powerful advocates for the gospel of Jesus Christ, so much so that almost every single one of them was martyred because of their faith. He saw his friend Peter hung upside down on a cross 
being executed for his faith because he would not renounce Jesus Christ. He saw Christianity expand beyond Jerusalem into the nearby towns and ultimately to the very ends of the earth all throughout the ancient world. He saw that because of persecution, the the center of Christianity moved from Jerusalem all the way to Antioch and even into Asia Minor in the ancient world. And he may have seen even the Emperor Nero uh, butchering Christians, blaming them for the, the burning down of the city of Rome. He saw incredible persecution for all the believers of Jesus. But by now, he is an old man, and he finds himself exiled on the island of Patmos. He'd seen Jesus. He'd followed him for three years. He saw him die on a cross. He saw him resurrect. He saw him ascend back into heaven. But now, while he's on this island, he catches a very different glimpse of Jesus. He catches a glimpse of what Jesus looks like now that he is in heaven. He describes him as as wearing a white robe that has a golden sash that comes across his chest. He describes him as having hair that is white as snow and has the texture of wool. He says his eyes are like flames coming out of his head. He said his voice is like the roar of many uh, waters and that it appeared like there was a sword that was coming out of Jesus's mouth. And he said Jesus's face was like looking at the sun in all its full strength and its full glory. And when John saw Jesus just like this, he was frightened. He was actually scared to death. This is all in the first chapter of Revelation that you begin to see this. And what it keys us in on as we look at the book of Revelation is that this is not an ordinary book. Instead, it's a book that doesn't really communicate truth in really straightforward ways, but it communicates it through all sorts of symbols and illustrations. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I don't know if your parents ever had the talk with you, Uh, but I know at some point in my life, I'm going to have to have that talk with my kids. And we all know what the talk is, right? And uh, I'm scared to death about having to, to have the talk with my kids. And sometimes it's really hard to have that talk. We don't want to be really straightforward and just lay out the facts uh, that, that, that may be needed to, to be laid out. So what do we do? We use really bizarre illustrations to help have the talk. We, do, we tell some convoluted story about birds and bees that I still don't really understand. And what we do is we use symbols and illustrations to communicate the talk rather than really being straightforward. Well, in some ways, that's what the book of Revelation does for us. It gives us truth, but it often gives them in symbols and in illustrations. And unfortunately, we won't get to all the illustrations that are in the book of Revelation, but what we want to do over the next couple weeks is focus on just seven simple letters that you read in chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. These are seven letters that are written to seven different ancient churches in the ancient world. And they were messages that Jesus gave to John to then take back to these specific churches. Imagine if I got up here this morning and said, I'm about to read to you a letter from Jesus himself. And that letter 
tells us about what he thinks about us individually and what he thinks about us as a church. You can imagine how significant and how substantial these letters must have felt to those ancient churches in the ancient world. The letters contain encouragements, corrections. They contain promises and instructions about things that they should do. But in the end, it communicates to us. It tells us what it means to be a church, what it means to be followers of Jesus in a community. About a year and a half ago, uh, we started this thing called City Church. We started gathering together for worship services. Before that, it was just a, a couple people sitting in my living room praying about what God might be doing in this area. And then about a year and a half ago, we started launching these regular worship services. But as a whole, we have still a long way to go as a church. And that's why these letters are so important. Because in some ways, the the DNA of this church is still being written. It's still at a very tender and very impressionable age. And that's why these letters are so important, because they tell us what sort of things we should be thinking about as a church as we write the DNA of what God might be doing in our story. They tell us about traps to avoid. They tell us about accent marks that we should really emphasize. They tell us about promises that we need to embrace as a church. But even if you're here and you're not necessarily a part of this church or not a part of a church at all, you may have lots of questions about church. You may wonder why people uh, get up early on a Sunday morning to gather together with other people. You may wonder why people gather in homes to to pray with one another or to break bread with one another or to, to share life with one another. You may wonder why people give money to something that, that doesn't immediately benefit them. And what these letters do is they help us to understand what this thing called church is really all about. And the first letter, the letter that we just read, is the letter to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a a large cosmopolitan city in the ancient world, and it sat on a really influential trade route. It was a very well-known city. It was probably a quarter of a million people, and it had a unique impact on the ancient world. And what Jesus does through John is he gives this church one specific encouragement. He gives them one criticism, and then he gives them one action point about what they are to do in the life of their church. The first thing you see is he gives them an encouragement. He encourages them that they have been working very hard and that they have maintained the purity of their doctrine. It says this in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You see, when you understand the, the, the first century church right after uh, Jesus uh, ascended back into heaven, you'll know that it was a church planning movement, not all that different than what we do now. And Jesus' first followers would go from city to city in the ancient world, planting new churches, new expressions of Jesus Christ's community in the ancient world. 
But often those apostles would have a very specific concern. They were always really worried that after they planted their church and they had to move on to the next city and plant another church, they were worried about the churches that they had to leave. They were worried that they would stay true to the core message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what would often happen is as soon as that church planter would leave and go to another city, other people would enter in. Paul calls them false teachers. John calls them false teachers too. And what they would do is they would enter into the church and they would obscure or subvert the message that the apostles had originally taught them. They would say things like, you, you heard Paul say that, that you are saved by grace, but, but this is what Paul really meant by being saved by grace. And in so doing, these, these false teachers would enter in and they would subvert the very core message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Jesus does is he commends this church. He says, despite the fact that all these false teachers have come into your midst, You've tested the things that they've said, and you have found them to be false. You have stood up under the hardships, and you have remained true to the core message of the gospel. You've seen the errors in the things that they teach, and you have stayed true to the core beliefs and the core doctrine of the gospel. Now, the things may be different today, There are many attempts to subvert even this core message of the gospel today. The shifts are often very subtle, but at the same time, they are very real. And it's why we as a church, why we as city church, and why we as individuals must stay grounded in the message of the gospel. It has to be our core identity as people and our core identity as a community of faith. Because when we stray away from the message of the gospel, we actually stray away from what it means to even be a church. We must stay true to it because it stays true to us. And what Jesus encourages the church at Ephesus with is that they have stayed true to the message of the gospel. But Jesus doesn't just offer them an encouragement. He He also offers them a criticism. And it reminded me of what one author said when he said this, every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Jesus criticizes the Ephesian church with something very profound. He says that they have lost their first love. He says this in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. This week I met with uh, a a man who once pastored an extremely large church in northern Virginia. Uh, He pastored there for about 10 years, uh, and... At the very end of his 10 years of pastoring, he uh, built a huge building. He went on, he led his church in one of these huge building campaigns, and he uh, built this, this just mega kind of worship center. But secretly, all the time while he was building and all the time while they moved in, he was miserable. 
he wasn't happy pastoring this large church. He, he wasn't happy overseeing some massive building campaign. And he did what everybody does when they're miserable. He snuck away a couple times uh, a week to a blues bar. He figured if I hang out in a blues bar, I'm not going to see anybody else from my church if I hang out in this blues bar. And he was so miserable, it was a place for him to just hang out and to be himself. Well, after spending countless amounts of nights in this blues bar, he started to have conversations with all these people that were surrounding him. And then all of a sudden, what he decided to do is he said, I'm going to leave this massive big church that I've led for the past 10 years. And instead, I'm going to start a church in a blues bar. And that's what he did. He started a church in a blues bar. Every Sunday, they get about 150 people. Half of them don't even believe the very things that he teaches, but just hang out with him anyway. He's done funerals in the blues bar. He's done weddings in the blues bar. And he even has Easter Sunday service in this blues bar. And he says he's the happiest he's ever been in his life. He wrote a book about his experience, and now he travels all around the world meeting with kind of pastors and individuals about what it means to really share their faith. And he said one thing that's really important that he's discovered over all of his travels is the very thing that is talked about in this letter to the Ephesians. He says when people come to the faith, they immediately come to the faith and they have all this zeal and excitement for this new relationship that they've found in Jesus Christ. They're so excited that they can't help but tell everybody they run into about Jesus Christ. He said, but then something happens. Somebody comes alongside of them and says, you should go to seminary. Then they go to seminary. And he said, what often happens is the minute they start going to seminary, all that zeal and passion that they once felt starts to diminish. He said, the death blow is when pastors get their doctorate. <laughs> when pastors get their doctorate, when they get their advanced degree, they might as well hang up their boots because all their passion and all their zeal for seeing lost people come to Christ has been taken away. Now, why is that? I don't know. I don't know the answer as to why that is the trend. And frankly, he doesn't know the reason either. But for whatever reason, for some reason, it seems that once our intellectual side of the faith grows, for whatever reason, our passion and our zeal for God tends to diminish. It most certainly shouldn't be this way. You'd think that the, the more we learn about God, the more we grow in our relationship with him, the more it should stoke our passion. But in practicality, the opposite is often very true. Sadly, this is often the reality that happens. And it was the problem of this church in Ephesus. They could hunt out heresy and defend doctrine better than any other church Good as good as anyone else, but in the process, their love had disappeared. The word love here that is talked about uh, by Jesus and ultimately by John has a much fuller sense than the love that you and I often talk about. And it really has two aspects. The first aspect it has is, is what we often think about, and we often think about love as passion. 
It is this white hot energy and zeal that we have for something that has won our affections. It is passion that gets us so excited that we can't help but talk to everybody we run into about the thing that has won our affections, about the thing that has captured our hearts. But there's another aspect to this love as well. And that is love that is more like a virtue. Love that has the idea of passion translated into action. And when when John speaks about this love, he talks not just about passionate zeal, but he talks about radically loving others with zeal and with energy. This kind of love, this love as a virtue, is a conscious choice not just to love others because it benefits us, but to love others in order for us to to bestow ourselves and our love upon them. It's choosing not to live for ourselves, but instead live radically for those that God puts in our path. This week, I'm going to start, uh, start premarital counseling with another couple that I'm going to begin, uh, I think I'm marrying in July. And uh, pre- premarital counseling is always really interesting. You get some couples that are, that are pretty well in touch with reality, and then you just get some couples that are absolutely drunk on love. I don't know if you've ever met these engaged couples before, but they are absolutely drunk on love. And they just believe that everything in life and their future is now going to be nothing but rainbows and sunshine. And anytime I do premarital counseling with this type of couple, I present them with all sorts of potential challenges that they may face at some point in their marriage. And they always say things like, our love will get us through. And all I do internally is just roll my eyes and say, this is the reality of life. I try to remind them in those moments that this white, hot, burning whatever that they are feeling at this moment will not always be the case, or at least it probably won't always be the case. They may not always feel the way they do in this moment right now. And the reality is for any of us who've been married, we know that there will be times where the passionate side of love doesn't come as quickly. And there will be times where the virtue side of love needs to kick in. Those times where we may not feel like loving our spouse, but there are times where love draws us to love them through virtue. You see, in some ways, the Ephesian church had the exact opposite problem. They'd had all the intellectual aspects of faith, but they had absolutely lost all of their passion. And because they had lost all their passion in the process, they had lost the virtue side of their love as well. They had stopped caring for one another and loving the people that God put in their path. One writer said this, love for other believers was the distinctive badge of Christian discipleship. But at Ephesus, uh, hatred of heresy and extensive involvement in the works appropriate to faith had allowed the first fresh glow of love for God and one another to fade away. The reality is the same danger is present for us. 
we can become so concerned with getting it right that in the process, we lose the love that is to be our most distinctive mark as a community of faith. We can make our intellect or our knowledge an idol in such a way that it steals away all of our affection for God. We can become so wrapped up in our duty as Christians that it steals all of our love away for others and for God. We can fall into the same trap that the church at Ephesus fell into. But fortunately, Jesus doesn't just leave them there. He tells them what they are to do in response. And he often tells us what to do in the response too. He gives them an action point. And the action point is very simple. It's two words, remember and repent. Remember and repent. It says this in verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. You see, the irony of all this is that the key to their problem, the key to all this is the very message of the gospel itself. See, Jesus says to them, remember from where you have fallen. So he realizes that, that the Ephesian church is just like us. We tend to be incredibly forgetful people. And that's why we need to be reminded constantly. We need to be reminded that, that Christ found us. When we were lost and when we were estranged from God, Christ came after us and he found us. When we were living in rebellion, when we were enslaved to sin, Jesus sought us out and he found us. The key is to remember that Jesus just didn't leave us in our condition of sin. Instead, he went on a rescue mission to save us. We did nothing but rebel against him in our sin. And instead of reacting in anger and wrath, he chooses to react to us in love. He plunged himself into human existence to save you and I. He allowed himself to be executed. He allowed his life to be taken away so that you and I could experience life. One author said the cross is the blazing fire in which our love for God is stoked we see the judgment that was meant to fall on us was poured out on him. At the cross, we were changed from enemies to friends. You see, to rediscover our love for God means to remember that all we bring to the table is our own sin. Yet despite that, he gave his life for you and I to experience life. Therefore, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember this good news. We need to remember the depth of the love that Jesus pours into our lives. And we need to remind ourselves every day because we are forgetful people. But he doesn't just say to remember. He says to remember and he says to repent. 
He says to radically redirect our lives into a different direction, to to stop going down the road we were going and instead turn around and move into a different direction, to turn from making our faith into simply duties that we have to accomplish every day, to repent and turn from our own tendency to make our faith only about our smarts and our intellect, to turn our, our intellect into an idol. Because the same warning is there for you and I as it is for the church at Ephesus. We have to ask ourselves, has our faith simply become an intellectual exercise? Has our identity as believers, is it more about getting it than all the other people out there in the rest of the world? Has it become all about duty and weeding out those who truly don't get morality or, or get the gospel? Have we lost our love at our most fundamental level? If so, God calls us to do the very same thing he called the Ephesian church to do. He calls us to rediscover a passion for him as we remember what he's done for us, as we repent of our sin, and we come more and more to terms with the deep love that he has poured into our lives.